What's up, guys? Jeremy here, host of the Short-Term Rental Pros Podcast. I'm here with Ryan Bakey, who is the top CPA in the game, speaking at all the top short-term rental conferences, working with tons of folk all over the country, help them save money on their tax bill. Ryan, man, how'd you get where you are? Tell us about yourself. I love to help people, man. I think I have a gift to take things that are extremely complex in nature and boil them down to something that everybody can understand. Everybody can understand saving money. And so that's what I do for a living, man. I help people save money on taxes, tax strategy. I've been a proponent of teaching how to build generational wealth, financial independence. I started in real estate and it's expanded into other ventures. So I have investments like other businesses, short-term rentals, clamping. I do RV parks, multifamily, laundromats, hair salons, and then other small businesses I'm looking to acquire. Damn, you're doing a lot. Yeah, so tell us. So obviously for this podcast purposes, the short-term rentals, tell us about your background. First of all, Ryan, how old are you? I'm 25. And only a short couple of years ago, you were you were working that that big four consultant life, weren't you? Yeah, I started at Deloitte. I spent about 18 months at Deloitte before I finally said enough's enough and I'm out. And when what what were like when you were at Deloitte, did you start doing some side hustles? Just kind of walk us through that. When did you start working at Deloitte? 21, 22? Yeah, I started working at Deloitte in 2020. And I want to say probably about a year after I was working at Deloitte, that's when I started side hustling it. From when I really started side hustling it till I took it full time was a little bit under a year. And I'll never look back. I don't think I'll work for somebody else ever again. Okay. And this side hustle at the time, was it accounting work? Or did you start with short-term rentals or just walk us through your oh. business progression and getting to where you are today? Yeah, it was accounting work at first. So just doing like smaller tax returns, tax strategy calls. I got really plugged into real estate when I understood how the tax code favors people who own real estate. So when you look at the tax code, it's written by members of Congress and and Congress, they're all business owners and they have investments and then they own real estate. So if you can park your money in those three vehicles, you're going to save money on taxes. And I figured... At Deloitte, I was helping people save money on taxes, but it was already people who were super rich and wealthy, who I, I never saw in person before. It was just a blanket company. I didn't really see who I was help serving. And that's why I wanted to help the, not the everyday person change your family tree, but I think there's one person in their family that has the power to change your family tree. And that's the person I, I serve today. Yeah. And you're totally right on. And guys, I, you hear it growing up that real estate, 90% of the world's millionaires are through real estate. And the real reason is because the tax code and just the capitalist system we live in was written by people who are trying to find an easy way to make money, our politicians, and they gave themselves and their friends huge tax advantages through real estate. That is the reason why 90% of America's millionaires are through real estate is because effectively we're in a rigged game and it is what it is. You can be mad about it. Or you can just learn the rules. And a guy like Ryan is the guy who probably knows the rules better than about anybody else. And I've been working really hard myself to, to learn those rules. And to be frank, I get my tax bill each year and I'm like, damn, this isn't that bad. And it's because I just happen to do real estate and I know about depreciation, bonus depreciation. But so tell us, Ryan, you're an accountant in general. So you work with people who have businesses, but what are like some of the unique things about real estate? that make the tax advantages so much better? Yeah, so it goes back to real estate having those four different pillars of, of how you can make money. So oftentimes in short-term rentals, people really focus on that cash on cash or that cash flow number, but there's four different metrics that you can 
use to make money in real estate. So number one is going to be the cash flow, which by the way, that cash flow is considered passive income, which means right away that money that you make in real estate is taxed a lot less than if you were to go to a W-2 or a day job and make that same amount of money. If I make 100K in real estate versus 100K at my W-2 job, I'm not subject to Social Security and Medicare taxes like my W-2 pay stuff is. So right away, I'm saving seven to $8,000 in taxes just because I made it in real estate and not at my W-2 job. On that, on that Schedule E. Yeah, on that Schedule, Schedule E. That's, that's where rich people live is the Schedule E and the everything other than line one that says W-2. That's where rich people yeah. live. Actually, Everywhere something besides- interesting, and this might be an advanced topic for this podcast, but like Michael Chang, we were talking about him earlier. He puts his arbitrage on Schedule E. I know. And I was like, what the heck? That's crazy. Like, what? Yeah. I, maybe you can, I don't, maybe that's too advanced of a time. Or just explain, what is a Schedule we, E? Yeah. Let me get into this. We'll get there in a second. So cash flow is the number one way you can make money. But then there's also, you also get the equity paid out, right? So as the tenants are paying your, as your tenants are paying you, you're paying your mortgage down. Well, the IRS doesn't see equity as a taxable event. So as your equity builds up and up, and then obviously the property's going to appreciate value, you can borrow against that equity tax-free. It's not a taxable event. So as the property as your property value rises, you can borrow against it completely tax-free. So that's another pillar. The third pillar is appreciation, right? So as that asset goes up in value, we can put 10% down, but we still get appreciation on the full amount. And that's why real estate's important. If I have 50K and I put it in the stock market, and let's say I get 10% appreciation in the stock market. I only have 55K afterwards. But if I take 50K and I buy a $200,000 rental property, I get 10% appreciation. My net worth just went up 20K, not 5K. Levered gains, using, baby. Using the leverage. And then, of course, the capital gains tax, the capital gains that you have can be tax favorable because capital gains are tax favorable. But you can also do things like 1031 exchange. You can do like what are called DSTs or statutory trust. There's all these things that you can do to actually get out of paying the capital gains tax. And then the fourth pillar, lastly, is the tax benefits, right? If you're able to tap into some of the uh, tax code, and I talk a lot about it in my podcast, but you can potentially use the tax benefits of real estate to help offset your W-2 or your business income. That is, that. I don't even know what a DST is. Like I'm telling you, Ryan, like I'm, I've been diving into the tax game myself, but I don't even know. There's just half of the stuff that's going on there. I feel like I know like that base level depreciation, bonus depreciation, cost seg. One thing that's awesome is during the Trump COVID outbreak or just whatever, during COVID depreciation was allowed to be, or just tell us what is this bonus depreciation thing? Why is it more now than it like normally is? Yeah. So generally before 2018 um, depreciation, you typically would take the life of the asset. So if it was a short-term rental, it would be 39 years and you depreciate whatever the purchase price is divided. What is depreciation for someone who has no idea? Yeah. So depreciation, I always consider it like a phantom expense because we don't come out of pocket for it, but we get to show it on our profit and loss. And typically in, I would say in the Midwest and in the South, typically a long-term rental, you might have $10,000 of net rental income. That's cash that hits your bank, but your depreciation is normally 12 or 15 K as it sits. So even though 10 K hits your bank account every single year, you get to turn around and tell the IRS that you actually had a loss on that property. And and what's taxes? And what's awesome is you show the IRS you have a loss, so you don't pay taxes. And if you show a loss, you can actually carry forward the losses, or you can offset it against other businesses or potentially even your W two income. But what's great as a real estate investor, banks don't see it as a loss. 
So you're actually able to borrow the same as if you were actually making money and borrow and lever up more, but then not pay taxes. So it's, it does, there's no downside to depreciation. Yeah. And then, so in that example, instead of accelerated depreciation allows me to just get the depreciation on a faster schedule. So instead of getting maybe 12,000 the first year, I'm getting 60 or 70,000 the first year. It depends on the location of the property, your taxable income, et cetera. I have a whole podcast on that part. But if, let's say, if I bought a property for 390000 I have $390,000 of tax benefits in that property, right? But they get stretched out over 39 years if I don't do anything. So it's just 10K, 10K, 10K every single year. Or I can accelerate the depreciation. Maybe I get 80K the first year. And then every single year onward, I probably only get maybe five or six K a year. But think about three things, debt, inflation, and taxes. So I'm using debt to leverage and get that purchase price amount that I'm getting appreciation cash flow on. I get to utilize the tax benefits of that because the longer I wait to utilize the tax benefits, the less advantageous it is for me. Because if I could have 10 grand of tax benefits, I want to take them in year one why would I want to wait till year 10 to take those? If I could have 10, if I could have 10,000 bucks in year one or $10,000 in year 10, I'm going to take $10,000 in year one because I can use that to earn and grow and multiply by you year can 10. You lever that 10 grand up to 50 grand and do it all but again. On, on the flip side, right? So if we have cash, if we have tax benefits, we want to use those as quick as possible. But what happens with debt? So with debt, we want to pay that back over 30 years. Because if I have a mortgage that's fixed, I want to pay that off as long as possible because the $1,500 that I pay a month, three years from now is not the same as $1,500 that I pay now because of inflation. You're getting fixed or you're you're getting cemented at today's USD. So the USD, everyone talks about, oh, maybe the value of the dollar is going to go down and the US is going to lose its status as the reserve currency in the world, which that could totally be its own conversation for another day. But all right. If that happens, the USD is devalued. Inflation happens. We have a massive US government debt. What are they going to need to do to pay the debt? They're going to need to print more dollars. What's going to happen? The dollar is going to get less and less valuable. And for those who own the assets, for those who own the real estates and have that 30-year fixed mortgage, that's that's music to your ears because you're locked yeah. in. I'll say, yeah, one of the early houses we bought, 450 grand. 3.2% interest rate. I think our payments like 1800 bucks a month. Honestly, to me, like I could like two, three years ago, $1,800 felt like a lot more than now. And I, that's two or three years later. And we've had what, 23% inflation and 20% inflation in the last three years or whatever it is. That's, that's two or three years. Think about 30. Yeah. Think about how inconsequential like you're, like you're paying $10 for your sandwich at lunch today that you paid $8 for couple of years ago, guys, well, I'm telling you 30 years from now, you're paying $25 for that sandwich. So you're getting your fixed monthly mortgage payment at today's currency. And then you're getting that discount in the future. So Ryan, okay. So the advantages here that you're talking about is appreciation. Properties generally go up in value over time. You can borrow against that appreciation tax-free. You're getting this depreciation, bonus depreciation. Tell me, I didn't realize, did that start in 2018? I thought that was a COVID thing the whole speeding up your depreciation. Can you correct me there? No, bonus depreciation was pretty much put in when President Trump overhauled the tax code in 2018. I wonder why, guys. We wonder why he made a huge advantage for real estate investors. So for for tax years, 2018 until the end of 2025, 
you're going to have bonus depreciation. So at the end of 2025 is when it ultimately is set to sunset, which means we don't get any accelerated depreciation after that. Are they going to, is it set to renew or is it gone forever? Is this like a one-time tax freaking lottery that's going on? Yeah. So currently it's set to expire. However, there's bills that are being written in Congress now to basically what are called extender bills to extend the the bonus depreciation. I know a lot of states are lobbying to extend it. I think, you know, how this next presidential election goes, we'll see what that means for real estate investors. But I think a lot of it also depends on the, where the economy's at. So yeah, one good note, if the economy is not like spending money and people aren't building houses, people aren't selling houses, people aren't transacting as much, people aren't buying enough. This isn't just real estate though. It's also machinery, equipment, trucks. Yeah. Boat rentals, my boats. Yeah, uh, I wrote off my boats, furniture. And so, if the government, if the if they want the economy to like ramp up and start spending money, one of the best ways to incentivize people to spend money is to give them tax benefits. So, I think whether or not it gets repealed and it keeps getting extended is going to depend on the what the economy looks like come that time when it's set to expire. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think a lot of people, they think about interest rates too. Oh, what way is interest rates going to go? Should I buy right now? And with that, a 6.5% interest rate, or do I wait five years? And I think, you know, what Ryan just said, like where the economy's at is the best, the best indicator for where interest rates are going to go. Or I guess, what are your thoughts? This is a little bit of a pivot here, but for those who are like, Oh, I'm, I want to wait like until lower interest rates. Like what's your thoughts on buying now or trying to time the whole interest rate game? So I always tell people that they should always be running numbers and deals. Even if you're not in the capacity to borrow money, let's say you don't have capital. You should always just be like getting those reps in. That's you think about the greatest basketball players ever. It's like, they're never not playing basketball, right? LeBron. So take LeBron James being six, eight. That's a gift, right? That's a gift. Yeah. His height and his speed is a gift, but he has skills. And he develops those skills by being the first guy in practice and being the last guy out. And those skills in real estate investor, because a lot of us aren't like our parents weren't real estate investors. We don't come from a real estate background. My, my dad was an electrician. My mom worked at a plumbing company. When I bought my first house when I was 21, they thought I was absolutely crazy. So you use those skills and you have to keep practicing them. So that being said, I will always tell people, I, I think it is not smart to just say, oh, just if it makes sense, buy it now. So then the rates come down and you can refinance. I think that's, I think that's stupid. I think that's very like impractical, but if you can buy now, even with the rates are high and the property still cash flows and it meets your metrics, you know, you don't want to discount your, if you're like, Hey, I normally only buy properties that cash on cash 20%, but don't discount that metric down to 12 or 15. Wait your time out to find that property that meets your metrics. But imagine typically for every 1% increase of interest rates, the purchasing power decreases by about 10%. So if I bought, let's say I bought a property for 300K with a 5% interest rate, and now interest rates tick up to 7%, well, my property in theory probably just lost that difference in value. My property is now 10% of 300, and then another 10% of 300 is 60,000 bucks. So the property that I paid, yeah, the property that I paid $300,000 for now it's really only worth 250 because interest rates went up 2%. Because the next person that comes to buy that house for me, they have a liquidity issue. But imagine if you bought a house at 7% interest rate, right? And it was this nice big house and it cash flowed for you and it got you in the game. And then rates come back down to 5%. What's going to happen to your property, your purchase price of your property? It's going to happen to the value of your property. 
Yeah. And honestly, I, I liked when, and actually you said, I bought a house in November, which I think was the peak. Well, November, October was about the peak of the interest rates. And yeah, they become- had to put 25% down, which like to me, I make a lot of money in the summer. My business is extremely seasonal. So like I had a lot of cash at the end of the summer and I wanted to deploy it and I wanted to buy. And I also actually wanted to do a cost seg before the end of the year. Unfortunately, we got hit by an ice storm and we had to cancel like, I don't know if you guys know about the East coast Christmas ice storm situation, had to cancel a couple of rentals and you need for a cost seg. All right. I mean, I feel like we really could talk all day about all this stuff, but if you're going to do a cost segregation study and you want to show a house as a rental, you need three, three groups to stay there in a year. We only had one. So unfortunately we failed on that, but we can just do it this next year, which isn't a big deal, but we bought a house. This was the most expensive house I've ever bought. 750 grand. 25% down, the most I've ever put down on a house, 25%. But I dude, this house we would not have got. I was like, I swear, if this house was on the market five months ago when interest rates were what were interest rates? I don't know. Let's just say like June, May, June of 2022. I don't know if you know off the top of your head. I'm thinking like four mm. percent maybe. And then I think in I think in February, March. That's when they started taking out. Yeah. yeah. So I was like, this house. You know, the house was listed at 770 or 775. We got it for 750. I was like, if this is May or June, this house is going for 925, like 950. Because, like you just said, interest rates shot up 3% or whatever, 3, 4%. What'd you say? That's a 10% decrease in purchasing power? Every 1% the interest rate goes up, it's typically a 10% decrease in purchasing power. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So like that being said, I I literally, I found comps on this house that sold in the summer that were over a mil. And I was like, Mm -hmm. I got to go for this house because I just think this is a, you know, this is an insanely good deal. And now we're six months later, interest rates, I guess the last week they've, as of filming this April 28th, they did go down to 6% or under 6%. Now they're back up a little bit, but like we're building a deck right now, like a thousand square foot deck. Once that thing's complete, I'm hitting that refi button. We're pulling out, <laughs> we're pulling out cash, debt free, tax free, doing all these things Ryan's talking about. So, just to put an example on what the point you were just saying, yeah, that's really interesting. So, I guess your thoughts is just like always be flexing those muscles of running the numbers on deals. And tell us about some of your deals. So, Ryan's cool and just like, why is he credible to talk about this stuff? Well, he puts his money where his mouth is. So tell us, I want to hear about your personal investing journey. It started with just the regular house hack, which is what I always recommend people to do if they want to get into real estate, or maybe if they're even on the fence of getting into real estate, they're like, I want to see if this is worthwhile. You should start house hacking. If you can, I'd recommend getting a side-by-side rather than a top-bottom. Um, that's the mistake that I made because I could hear my tenant kind of like <laughs> me most of the time. But That was personal. You could put on some ear protectors for that one. Yeah, but so that... House hacking is great because it, for a young person, you know, early 20s, mid 20s, just getting their started in their career, that cuts your largest expense per month in half, if not whole. You're not going to, you're not going to completely eliminate your mortgage with just a duplex, but if you bought a triplex or a quad and you lived in one and rented out the other three, you're definitely not paying a mortgage. And in fact, you're probably making money. So the numbers on mine was, uh, so I bought a duplex, my PITI was $1,600 a month. I was running out my upstairs for $1,250. So I was paying like 400 bucks or less per month to live as housing, whereas the rest of my friends were paying $1,200, $1,300 a month. If you live there as a prime, can you like, can you depreciate and cost seg it like it's investment property? 
Okay, so that so I don't want to get into that, but okay. So then I what I teach people like in my tax academy program and like anybody that works with me is the idea of the negotiation. When you go to a closing table or when you go to a deal, you really want to come prepared with what are the cops in the area? What is this property really going to going to appraise at? And that's where you can get these really sweetheart deals. So what happened was is I knew this property was going to appraise right around probably 260 to 270 based on the comps. Okay. And so when I bought my property, that was when interest rates were like 3%. There was no seller concessions to be had ever because sellers were just like, oh, I could just sell the house to whoever else. They'll come and pay it. Right. So I was able to lock the property un under contract for 245. Okay. I locked the property under contract for 245, mm -hmm. knowing it would appraise for 260, 265. And sure enough, it did. And then at that point, what you're able to do, if you have the, if the property appraises for more than what you paid for it, what you should do is go to the seller and say, Hey, I want to renegotiate the contract. I'm going to give you 260 grand. So I'm actually going to give you 260, but I'm going to need seven or $8,000 back as a seller. Closing costs. Yep. Yeah. Towards my down payment closing costs. So basically that $8,000 that I got, it was actually 10, but eight in this example. That money that I got at the towards my closing costs and down payment, instead of having to come out of pocket for that, I was able to, I'm essentially able to lump that into my 30 year loan amount, right? And so now I'm decreasing my total cash invested. And now I'm paying that off over 30 years. Using an FHA 3.5% down loan, I was only, basically I was out of pocket. I think it was maybe four grand. Is how much I had to come to closing between earnest and the purchase price. And so the best part is to your point is, the upstairs is considered a rental unit, which means I can get tax benefits from that. So I actually hey, did, I actually did. So I cost seg my rental unit upstairs. And at the time I was making less than 150 grand. So I was actually able to take long-term rental losses against my W2. And I actually saved 6,000 bucks in taxes by doing that. So I was four grand out of pocket, six grand saved in taxes. I actually got paid two grand to buy the house. So he closed on a property with cash in his pocket, he now has a depreciable asset for, for years to come. Even if he, you bonus some of it, you'll still be able to depreciate over the long term. Now, I'm assuming you've moved out. Do you have both? Or are, did you move out? Or are you still? I don't hear no, any footsteps right now. No, okay. Yeah. Are you upstairs now, though? So you got the, you switched no, I, him I, up. I'm still down. He's still, still down. down. So thank you, whoever's upstairs. I guess they're at work right now or something. Yeah, he works. Okay. All right. You're still downstairs. But at some point, are you going to move out downstairs, do the same thing? get both yeah. both both sides or wait both floors rented yeah so when i rent this unit out i'm gonna get probably 1500 dollars a month for this unit because it's two bedrooms instead of one i'll be cat i'll be cash along about 1100 dollars a month on this duplex that i never even what would it pull in as an str so i was just doing math but in this in the town that i live in they have you have to pay a license every single month it's actually like 50 bucks a month and it has to be, a year it has to be your primary residence in order to SCR. So, oh, yeah. yeah, that's no fun. Uh, but that was okay, my first so. deal. That was how I got started. And then from there, it was a, I actually, the guy that I bought this property from, he helped, he worked with me for a seller finance deal on a four unit that he had, which is, it's in the same town. So I picked up a four unit multifamily, rented that out. And then I, I picked up a short. What were the terms to that deal? 
Okay, so that one was a little bit more steep. So I sell. I was able to get seller financing on that one, and the purchase price was about four fifty, four fifty five. I think is. What Were I you out of financing at that point because you? Just yeah, that's why I had to sell our financing. For those who don't know what seller financing is, if you're just going to give the TLDR on that. Yeah, seller financing is where the seller basically becomes the bank, and the seller is going to give you some of their proceeds from the sale of the property towards your down payment, and then they're essentially going to be the ones that are holding the note. You pay the seller, not the bank, and the the terms on that. Your you, seller financing right now, as this podcast is being recorded, is going is pretty popular now. Um, Massive and sub subject to also yeah. because people are fixed at you're locked in at low interest rates, so taking on their financing is also another thing people are doing. Yeah, a lot of deals that we're working out now, a lot of the a lot of the money in the deals literally just buying the low interest rate debt, buying the yeah. three and a half percent debt. Right now, when the cost of borrowing, especially in a business or an LLC, you're paying six and a half seven percent to borrow money. Some people are doing sub two deals just to lock in a super low interest rate, three and a half. And they're not even caring about cash flow or anything like that. They just want to deploy. They want to get in. They want to buy real estate. And if I have a asset that's a that I think is going to be appreciating at seven eight percent a year, and the debt the debts on it is only three percent, but and I'm getting that spread plus simple. inflation, it's a no brainer. And then I so then short term rental, and then I made my biggest jump. So I went from short term rental to clamping slash RV park project that was 3.8 million i have let's go yeah tell us about that deal break it down for us yeah so that's 900k raw land 13 acres building i believe it's we're gonna have about close to 60 rvs on there 20 clamping tents a couple single family homes and it's just gonna be it's not fully constructed yet but hopefully in missouri yeah missouri Missouri. yeah i can't it's gonna be a challenge to drive my car down there i'm gonna have to figure out how to yeah, hey man, take a camper van, park it at your RV park. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to come borrow your boat. Yeah, I'll let you. You can totally whip a boat from North Carolina to Missouri. Pontoon boat will get you there in no time. Okay, so you're in Missouri. So that deal is yeah, just like so how much total deal size, how much financing. If you don't mind sharing, like partnerships. Like I'm someone who's, you know, who's, and I think Ryan and I are good examples. Where like, look, like we're not talking to you as folk who have been in this game or just been in business for 35 years. And we just have so much money and assets that like we're doing massive things. And we're just we have unlimited cash to deploy. We've got to be scrappy. You know, yeah. Ryan talks about that first hack he did. He didn't buy a $7 million house. He bought a 265k house that he got a deal for he got it for 245 raised the purchase price in order to not have to come out of pocket any cash. That's scrappy. That's you're hustling, you're starting not without unlimited means. So every deal, like for myself, every deal I did early on, and even to this, it's got to be creative. Yeah. I've went from K houses to 750 K houses. Sure. Like I can go a little bit higher in that regard, but that being said, like the deal's got to pencil out. They've got to be really opportunistic. So yeah. Tell us about this deal. What or any, or just any partnerships you have? How's it, how does that work? Yeah, I would say that's the like NBA equivalent to like Patrick Beverly or something. He's just scrappy. <laughs> yeah, so this is something that actually at the first STR Wealth Conference that I spent year 2022, to Johnny said, in real estate, you need three different things. So you need the time, you need experience, and you need the capital, but you don't necessarily need all three yourself. Mm-hmm. If you if people at first people might have that, but at one point they get tapped out. My debt to income was tapped. I wasn't able to get the financing. But I might have had the time and the experience to get the deal done. And so in partnerships, I think it's really just aligning your interests with people who have what you do not have. And I tell this people all the time, focus on what you're like truly gifted and skilled at. 
and leave the rest to everybody else. And in, in the partnership, I have the time and experience of like underwriting deals, doing pro forma, getting the deal to the finish line. I don't have the experience of managing a campground. That I cannot do, but I can pro forma out what I think these things are going to cost to run, how much money these things are going to make and do deal analysis on that. So I was able to find partners who boots on the ground, people that actually live in Branson that could help manage the property. And I'm, I was able to bring my skill sets of accounting and finance, and then as well as a little bit of capital raising to the table. Gotcha. So how this deal, you, you raise money or what, yeah. What's it look like? You yeah. We, we raised close to a million bucks. I think it was about 850 wow. grand. Yeah. Did you bring grand. cash to the table? I brought cash to the table as a sign. Like you're out of your pockets, cash to the table. Yeah. yeah. Good. And I, I personally am a believer, even like I've, pro- I've raised money where I probably could have came without any cash. Like, mm-hmm. I, but to me, like, I just like that incentive alignment where it's, dude, I've got money here too. Look, like I'm putting my money where my mouth is as well. Yeah. So I just think that also as, as someone who invests in other people's deals some now, like I want to see them bring cash to the table and just put their own skin in the game. But okay, so you raised a million dollars, you underwrote it. How is the, did you, what's the financing? Is it a commercial bank or local commercial bank? Tell us what's the financing look like? Yes, yeah, it's, it's local. It's local commercial. Now the construction loans are a little bit different because oftentimes there's like a interest only period during the time that it's under construction and then it kind of kind of refi it. Yeah, it rolls because the land loans typically are 15 years. But the construction loan, once the construction's complete, it's gonna it's gonna roll into an amortization schedule just like any other loan. But I would save that for some other time conversation. Yeah, we could talk on so many things all day. But yeah, some folks want to go stay there when's the estimated completion date. Probably this fall. Hopefully get some bookings in before this fall. I know yeah. Branson kind of freezes during the winter, but hopefully get some bookings in before the before not the to Chicago level. No, not to Chicago level, no. Yeah, but that's actually cool. So like personally, I'm trying to, so I have a campground when I say that I have one camper there and then I have a, an estate I manage in Western NC where we're putting tiny homes around it and increasing the value and the appeal that way, but like really trying to level up. And that's why I get, it's cool that Ryan started with the house hack and now he's leveling up to a 60 unit campground, but guys stay following us. We're going to keep, we're going to keep things going to the next level. I don't even know 10 years from now, what type of deals you want to be doing 10 years from now, 500 unit apartment buildings, or what's your goals and ideas for the future? Yeah, right now I'm under, I'm trying to get some, well, first I have to secure a new primary residence that's in the pipeline. I, you don't like being, under, yeah, I like being a spouse. I think we found a pain point for you. I'm crazy guys. I, I actually have a deal under contract now. It's a little over a million dollar purchase price in Miami. It's a five bedroom, three bath house. Primary? Uh, it's just South no, I wish, but I was like, uh, damn, I didn't know that. <laughs> it'll, it'll be a short, it'll be a short term rental. Hopefully close in middle of May. The partnerships, financing. Partnerships. Yeah. Look like? so it's a partnership with a husband and wife that I actually met in Destin. I did a, an event in Destin with Avery Carl and Rachel Gainsbourg last winter. Okay. Found out that, found out that they were both from, they were from Chicago area. And so we've just been connected ever since. And now six, six, seven months later, we're doing a deal together. Are they second home loan? They're carrying the note and you're bringing uh, it's, it's a D, It's a DSCR oh, okay. product. Interest okay. rate. Yeah. And I think for people who listen to the podcast, so DSCR is a, a wild card when it comes to financing. So I always tell people this too, and my students and people on social media and whatnot, if you can utilize your ability to borrow money at low interest rates and conventional well financing. As, yeah. As well as in your own name, whether that's through house hack or FH, 
I guess going back, I would say I wouldn't do FHA three and a half percent anymore. I would rather just pay the, I'd rather just pay up to the 5% conventional. Conventional five. Yeah. And the reason is because when you, if you have an FHA at three and a half percent and you get to 20% equity in the home, in order to drop the private mortgage insurance, the PMI, you actually need to get an appraisal done on the property and you need to do a refinance to close into a new loan. Versus if you just go 5% conventional house act from the start, all you need is the appraisal on the property and then the bank will automatically drop the PMI. You don't need to refinance. To refinance, because think about it too. If I have, so I bought that house 3% interest rate. Once I have 20% equity in it, if I want to drop the PMI, you have to I'm going to have to refinance and do a mm-hmm. higher rate. So I'm not going to refinance. Even though I have 20 in the house, I'm not going to refinance because it's going to kill my monthly, my, my monthly payment's going to freaking shoot up by 50%. So, so you're going to keep playing PMI for years effectively. Unfortunately, yeah. Until the rate, or you have to just pay sense. down. You have to pay down principal. Yeah. So you have to put cash well, into the property to stop paying what that two hundred dollars a month of PMI. Well, that's the problem with FHA. From my understanding, is you have to close into a new loan in order to drop the PMI. Oh, not even if you just hit that twenty percent. Well, that's why the so the appraisal will come in and say you have twenty percent. Uh, yeah, because the, the value of the property will go up, yeah. and you'll capture. You'll have that levered gains. You'll capture that appreciation. But yeah. what if you just pay down the mortgage each month and let's say you're at three and a half percent now, I would assume that might take 10, 15 years to, to hit that like 20% pay down. Like you now mm-hmm. through your monthly payments have paid down 20% of the principal. Because if you guys look at an amortization schedule, like you're paying interest at first, you're barely paying any principal. It's so crazy. And that's why real estate, like it's a long-term game because by year 30, you're paying only principal. If you have a 30 year loan, you're not paying any interest in year 30. So I guess your point, you can't even just prepay principal and have the PMI taken away. That I don't know. I didn't think about that part. I would think so. Damn, maybe Ryan's learned something from me. All right, I mean, let's maybe, go. Maybe. Let's go. All right. Yeah. So I would say, and this is what I tell people all the time. So I work with a bunch of people who are trying to get out of their W-2 jobs or whatever they do for work and into real estate. Not necessarily because they hate their jobs, although some some people do, but they really want the time freedom. And I think the biggest hurdle that I see a lot of people, like the way they fail to scale is they don't protect their DTI too enough. You know, I was just talking to somebody yesterday. They're going to go, they have a primary, they have W-2s, and then they're going to go buy a secondary home loan. 10% 10% down. And it's like, how, what are you going to do next? Because now your DTI is 35, 40, 45%. You're tapped out. You have to go the DSCR, DSCR. or the commercial route or, or the investment loan, which is going to require you to put 20 to 25% down on a property. You're going to have shittier terms, shittier rates. Sorry, Spotify. but it's like, <laughs> what I try to tell people is like in, so I, I shoot pool a lot at the local bars and stuff. That's kind of Ryan's at your but, local dive bar, guys. Go down to Branson dive bar. Ryan's there. Don't come to South Chicago, you'll be scrapped. No, but um, it's not, I'm not focused on the shot, but I'm focused on where my cue ball is going to land so I can take the next shot. And I think oftentimes when people are investing, they're not, they're like so focused on that one deal that they're not thinking about where they're setting themselves up for the next deal. So I just talked to somebody yesterday too. They want to do basically hard money into an STR. And I told them like why I think that's a terrible idea is because let's say, let's say I want to buy a $500,000 house, but I don't have any money. And so I'm going to put, I'm going to take your hundred grand. You know, I'm going to take your hundred grand that you're going to give me as hard money debt to buy a $500,000 house. 
let's say at best I can cash flow 20% cash on cash. So I'm taking your hundred grand, I'm netting $20,000 a year on the property, right? 20% cash on cash. I still have to pay you your interest payment, which you're probably going to want to be pretty 10%. 10%. So then now I only have $10,000 in net income. And how am I going to ever get you your $100,000 of equity back? It, the only like hard money doesn't work in smaller short-term rentals because of that appreciation factor, because your short-term rental typically, unless it's in like Smoky Mountains or a very tourist area, short-term rentals are going to be traded based on comps, like sales comps in the area. So you can't just mm-hmm. do your best to drive NOI and appraise at a higher value because they're going to be traded based on sales comps. So hard money and short-term rentals, in my opinion, they don't really go too well together. Just yeah, they're not. It's like they're how to buy that person out. Yeah. And that's what people talk about, like home flipping. Home flipping is built for that. You know, literally that's, that is the model of being a home flipper with the hope that home prices just go up. Short-term rentals, home prices go up the same way they do any other type of house, but they don't go up more. Like Ryan is saying, they don't go up more because they're cash flowing a lot more. They go up the same. They go up the same value as the neighbor's house with the family who's lived there for 20 years and doesn't make any money on the property. So that's like one of the inefficiencies about short-term rental. But do you think you see that changing in the future where people are gonna be able to sell their portfolios based off NOI, net, net operating income for those ones? Yeah, that's something that you could... Now, if you have a portfolio of, let's say, five plus short-term rentals, you might yeah. be able to get those grouped and appraised based off a, you know, based off a cap rate. Take the net operating income before debt service on all those properties and then be able to, you might be, I've not that I've heard, but I've seen people do that, but that's when you get to that, you get to that portfolio where it's five to seven properties where somebody, a bank will come and loan on the whole portfolio. But you know, that, that requires you, if you have partners on those properties, like you have to get them bought out or you have to work with the bank to get them bought out of their share too. Yeah. So like the financing game in short-term rentals, it's, 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 common. it's, mur- it's murky. DSCR is like a relatively new product for short-term rentals. Historically, DSCR has been there for a long-term rent. With DSCR is debt service coverage ratio loan. Effectively, if you can prove to the bank that the, like the earnings of the house is going to easily pay the mortgage, then they'll give you the loan. Or am I correct in that understanding? Yeah. Typically for DSCR, you know, they're going to be if you're not a short-term rental investor, they're going to be actually based off long-term rental comps. For example, like if you're in, let's say you're in Florida, you want to buy a $750,000 house, getting a DSCR loan on that is going to be virtually impossible because they're going to look at that property and they're going to say, well, what does it rent as a long-term rental? Oh, it can only rent for 3000 a month, 4000 a month. Okay, we're going to appraise it. Let's just call it 1% rule. Okay, we're going to appraise it for four, 450 grand. Um, so getting- that's why DSCR gets tough. But for a DSCR, typically you need to, yeah, the property has to, debt service coverage ratio. Now, when I was in school, like I, we always were taught a healthy DSCR is typically like 1.25 to 1.5, meaning every, every $1.5 that you have, you're basically able to pay off that mortgage and then have that 50% left over or have that 1.5 of net operating income to the mortgage payment, really healthy margin there. But nowadays, like some of these DSCR loan products, because these banks are trying to get loans made. They're dropping that. I've seen like one point one. I've no, I've no, I've seen one, dude. I've seen 0.75. I've seen, I've heard of 0.75. Yeah, it's uh, crazy. It's absolutely, it's like very, it's honestly like ill and like stupid in my opinion. But we'll it, see. The idea that the they'll qualify tell. a property, like they'll qualify a property that's literally losing money. Think about that. 
Yeah. And then actually, I think there was someone at the conference who does those products. And I was like, well, what happens if they can't pay it off and like home values go down? He's like, hasn't happened yet. <laughs> He's like, we haven't had one default yet. I'm like, all right. <laughs> Not that these DSCR loans are such a small segment of like the loan world that yeah. I don't think it would really affect things on a macro scale, but I don't know. We'll be monitoring. Ryan and I will be monitoring the situation, let y'all know what's going on. But Ryan, we're running mm -hmm. out of time here. What I like to do is I think you've had so many tangible takeaways, which is awesome. I didn't even have to ask you to like say tangible things. You just naturally did it. But what is a tangible pro tip for our listeners? Understand numbers, pro formas, percentages. To have a idea of a property is going to make money is one thing, but actually put it on paper and understand how to learn numbers. Because once you learn how to value a business or value a property based on the cash flow, you can really go into any sort of business or industry and try to put a value on that, right? If I have, if I can make, if I have an asset that's going to produce me $10,000 in net income per year, what am I willing to pay for that? Well, if I have discounted cash flows of $10,000 a year for seven years, what is that worth in today's money? That's what I need to pay for the property. A lot of people, when they look at properties, they look at the purchase price on Zillow or Redfin, and then they work their pro forma. When I see a property, I'm like disregarding the purchase price at first. I want to work the numbers because I can back into what I should pay for the property. You want to get to the point where you're working backwards. A lot of people go purchase price, how much gross revenue, what are my expenses? What's my debt service? I start with, okay, how am I going to finance this thing? What are the expenses going to be? How much does it need to make? And then what am I willing to pay? Yeah. So he, so guys know your numbers, know your revenues and expenses, know your financing. A great tool I know to do that is if you want to check out BNB Calc, it does lay out all the variables. It doesn't lay out the tax benefits. I Shameless something plug. Ryan, yeah. Something Ryan and I are talking about is how do we, you know, display the tax benefits or if we just say, talk to Ryan, that's going to be the best way to display the tax benefits. But yeah. Ryan, where are, where can folk find you? Yeah, so I'm all social media. It's going to be Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, at Learn Like a CPA. On Facebook, I have a Facebook group called Tax Strategies for Real Estate Investors. We have over 5,500 real estate investors in the Facebook group hosting comments and daily. Check out the Facebook group, free to join, obviously. And then, yeah, just stay connected on social media. I post every single day. Beautiful, Ryan. Well, I'm excited. We'll definitely have you back and see what type of deals you're doing and how tax situation progresses. Thank you so much for coming today. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. All right, guys, until next time, stay tuned. Short-Term Rental Pros Podcast. See y'all next time.